Hello and welcome to Dress Fancy, the only podcast about fashion, fantasy and fancy dress. I'm Lucy Clayton and I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Wilde to discuss a few of our favourite things. Today's episode is about something we've referenced previously in this show, but which we've not properly indulged in. Today's the day we enter the wonderful world of cosplay. And what a wonderful and in some ways surprising world it is. Is it worth, I think, starting with sort of parameters and thinking about definitions in, in a very broad sense? I think so, sense? because I think cosplay is something that people have a lot of assumptions about, but mm. have never potentially, unless you're part of that community, haven't really thought about the accurate definitions. So yeah. perhaps let's set it up. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's something that different people would have different connotations of. But I think if we're thinking about cosplay, yes, we are thinking about dressing up. But it's more, I think, than just the, if you like, the superficiality of donning a new costume. It is also that idea of acting the part. Because I think what differentiates cosplay from other forms of dressing up is the idea of fandom. The idea that you're dressing as usually a fictional character and usually a fictional character from a cartoon or an animated genre, but not necessarily. But you are also embodying the attributes of that particular character. So you are, for as long as you're dressed up, living, acting, conducting yourself as though you are that character. So it's a long way from an Amazon polyester costume, worn for one night, yeah. to a party. It really is. Yeah. But importantly, cosplay is a complex phenomenon mm. and its relationship with, as you say, fandom, pop culture, to a certain extent, reenactment. That's probably the closest we've come when we're thinking about LARPing, yeah. you know, in season two, I think it was, that we've come to this. Yeah. And also the sort of tribal enthusiasm mm, exactly that, around yeah. this idea. We thought we should have an expertise greater than our own to explore this world with I guess our guide, yes, really, yes. our spiritual guide. So Ben spoke with Teresa Wing, professor at Michigan State University, to really get to grips with the detail of cosplay culture and its place in the world. The following was recorded over Skype. So Ben doesn't sound his usual level of Mariah Carey studio <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Profuse apologies. <laughs> so I wonder if we could maybe start by just thinking about... The idea of cosplay, because I think as your book opens, it's something that we all maybe have an idea of, but might, when pressed, find it somewhat hard to define. So if we're thinking about cosplay, could we maybe think a little bit about it, its kind of evolution? Because I think one thing that I found quite interesting when reading your book is you suggest that a starting point for cosplay is actually in America rather than in Japan and yeah, yeah. in the 19th century with this costume ball that is hosted by Jules Verne where people are dressing as characters from his book. Why for you is that a sort of pivotal moment in the origins of cosplay? So I went looking for and probably my most cited article is the origins of cosplay and it's because yes. it's very controversial. So half of the time I'm cited it's because people want to disagree with me. Mm -hmm. I found research that suggested cosplay started in the United States and that it started here in the 1960s around the Star Trek TV series. Yeah. But 
when I was researching for the book and putting things together, I was thrilled to find that actually there's several pieces of evidence that suggest cosplay started well before that. One is Jules Verne's diary. He mentions that he has masquerade balls and that in these masquerade balls, much soothing his ego or stroking his ego, (laughs) he had people dressed as characters from his novels. Mm. Now, there's suggestion in other places that actually his fans had suggested this happen, which led me to the idea that this is an example of cosplay. Another example, though, is also women in particular dressing as Skygap which was this early comic in the 1800s published in several magazines. Yeah. Skygak is an alien and he comes to earth and he's trying to understand earth. And so he asks a lot of questions. It's usually a two or two to four picture comic. And so it doesn't give you a lot to build on, but it was so influential to people that women were showing up at parties not masquerade parties, not costume balls, but just showing up at parties dressed as Skygag. And they would get so much attention that mm. the newspaper would be notified and they'd come to the party and take pictures or interview these women. And there's a couple of instances of men, but most of it's women dressing in this costume as Skygag. And what really was controversial at the time was, yes, she's dressed as this character from a comic, but we all love this character, so it's great. But why is it a woman dressing as what's clearly a male alien? And the women would argue that this wasn't a male alien. It was an alien. They didn't know what gender it was. So they could dress as this alien if they Mm -hmm. wanted to. Mm -hmm. And so in both situations with Skygak and Jules Verne's masquerade balls, we see people who are fans dressing as characters they love or identify with not necessarily that they look like this person but that they have a deep connection to them what's interesting about that is because in terms of some of the research that i've been doing on fancy dress costume and thinking you know as as you've done with your research sort of tracing that back you know where's the i suppose the etymology of these terms but also where are the inspirations for this form of dress and If we go back to, let's say, in Europe, the 17th century, when you have the mask, so this is the royal court mask, where you have members of the aristocracy, their acolytes sort of dressing as characters from mythology and in sort of personating those roles. I'm kind of wondering, in your mind, be a sort of proto form of cosplay? Is that similar? Because there you've got people who are dressing differently, but also embodying a character. I think that you touch on something interesting there. And it was a place where I drew a line in the sand and didn't go back further, partially because I had so much to say about contemporary cosplay. But the truth is when you go back to Carnival and Mm. you think about just average people in a town dressing like royalty. Yes. I think that could be seen as cosplay for sure. And so when you have people dressing for masquerades, using masks that may communicate another identity, fictional identity that many people may know, that definitely crosses into this fandom area uh, Mm. well before we think fandoms existed. Yeah, that's a good point. And I suppose also then, I mean, and this is one of the things that was difficult in the nature of my research, it's the terminology. And I think 
in this area where we are researching, people will talk about costume, they'll talk about cosplay, they'll talk about fancy dress, they'll talk about dressing up. And for some people, these terms are synonymous. For some people, these terms all have very specific meanings. And I think that is as much for, if you like, a sort of general populace as academics as well, which I think kind of confounds the issue. So in terms of the term cosplay, which tends to be the the term that academic and non-academics use, what is the specific genesis of this term? How does that come to be used if we're going to trace its origins back to the sort of 19th century or thereabouts? Why is it that we only really use this term cosplay from the 1980s? It's a really good story. That's part of my original article and then part of my mm. book. Yeah. That what I found is that the science fiction conventions in particular where fans would go were happening around the world, but they were primarily happening in Western culture. So Europe and North America had the most conventions. And like I said, in the 60s, there's evidence, 60s and 70s, of people dressing up as science fiction characters, going to science fiction conventions, old and new. New ones are starting all the time. And what they would do is they would dress as their favorite characters. Well, then organizers of those conventions started to have a masquerade evening so that not only people could gather and see each other's costumes, but mm. also they could give out awards and there could be dancing and drinking and fun. And so people absolutely love that. There was a Japanese journalist who came yeah. to the United States for a convention. Okay, so his last name is Takihashi, his first name is Nov, but that's really his journalist's name. Okay. And he attended Worldcon in Los Angeles in 1984. Mm -hmm. When he's there, he attends a costume competition called the Masquerade. And there's a parade of costumes. And so he watches the parade, he watches the Masquerade, and he goes back to Japan very excited. Mm. Uh, absolutely loves this idea. There's a concept in Japan called kawaii, and it's embedded throughout the culture. Kawaii in short terms means something that's very cute, but there's a little bit more to it. It's about portraying a characteristic or even a character that's vulnerable and cute. And mm -hmm. so dressing up in costumes is very near and dear to Japanese culture. Yeah. And so when he goes back as a journalist, he wants to explain to everyone what this exciting thing is and that everybody should start doing this as well. But he realizes he can't say masquerade in Japan. It will yeah. sound too elite. And mm -hmm. so he comes up with a word that is essentially putting costume and play together called cospure. Yeah. And that eventually becomes cosplay. And everybody comes to know this. The difficulty is that in contemporary times, costume role-playing or cosplay tends to be convoluted and confused with masquerades for other events, other yeah. types of things, as well as being confused with Halloween costume designing exactly. or yeah. Halloween costume wearing. And mm. I think that I definitely have this question all the time. People will always want to equate cosplay with something that they understand. And for most exactly. people yeah. in North America, they understand Halloween. And so they'll say to me, oh, this is Halloween. And I was like, no, it's actually not. Halloween, you could dress up as a bum or the average businessman, mm -hmm. but you're not necessarily dressing 
in a fantasy character. Although I know that today most people probably do buy costumes and, and their children are dressing like Disney characters, for example. But I try very diligently to explain that the level of research and that the person that wears the costume is a fan, not Mm. just, I like this character or I think that character's cool or all my friends have that character's backpack, but actually huge fans that they know things about the character that aren't necessarily even part of the storyline that's Mm. been communicated to the broad public. Yeah, I think you're right. It's this idea that it isn't so much the superficiality of appearance, that there is this deeper personal resonance between an individual character and the person that decides to dress as or dress similar to them, this sort of almost empathy and, and sympathy with them, I think. Right, exactly. Yes. And that, again, is interesting, this idea that although you've got, in terms of dressing up more broadly or cosplay, something that is culturally prevalent across different global societies, you know, we're hitting on this idea of the problem of nomenclature, that you don't have terms in the West that are analogous to terms in the East, etc. And I think, again, as much as that can in some ways enrich our understanding and make us aware of different cultural nuances, it can also, in a sense, confound analysis and confound people's understanding. And I suppose that leads us into, for me, what I think is a really interesting kind of theme throughout your book. And it's the discussion that you have about the role of the media. And you suggest that there is this, well, at once dynamic intense relationship between cosplay and the media in the sense that you suggest that there is a concern that the media is very self-serving in its reporting of cosplay and quite manipulating. But then, on the other hand, the media is necessary to establish cosplay to challenge preconceptions about it being marginal, uh, subculture and negative. So I suppose starting with that, how is it that you see the media being sort of self-serving and being manipulative in its reporting of cosplay? Yeah, it's something that I was really reluctant to embrace at first when I discovered it in the research, but mm. it was difficult to deny many of the cosplay forums and Facebook pages for cosplayers that I have followed throughout the research. They suggest that something happens at a convention and then it's covered in the news, it's covered in a news article or a video, and it's done so very biasly. Yeah. And the cosplayers will often take exception to it. And before social media, I just don't think they had a place to express discontent with the way that they were being covered in the media. There are a few older books that I found where people that were well-known science fiction writers and performers that had written memoirs or they had written about a certain situation And I would glean a little bit from that, that they were dissatisfied with the way that the media was covering them. But Mm. essentially what's happening is, of course, the media has to be to some degree manipulative in what they present, no matter what the story is. They just can't cover every aspect of it. Cosplay is usually covered by local media first. And Mm. in that They want it to be a happy, uplifting story. Here's our kids. They're dressed up in costumes and they're having fun. But a lot of times when they send reporters to a convention, I don't think they fully understand what they're going to get. And I think the surprise of that is what initially 
led the media to realize there's ways that we can present this so it'll be a little more sensational. It reminds me a little bit of like in the late 70s, early 80s, when in North America, we were being introduced to heavy metal and you would have the news saying that this was going to rot our brains and we were going to use drugs and we were going to be involved with sex. Yeah. And I think that when reporters would come to conventions initially, probably in the 70s and 80s, they were seeing adults and they were seeing adults on vacation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's a very decadent, boundary-specific place that they can let go. And so there might be drinking, there might be sex. And I would imagine reporters were probably a little surprised to find how many adults were playing like children. Yeah. And so as time has went on now, when I go to conventions, when I went to conventions in the 80s, it was primarily adults. You would rarely see a child even under the age of 18. That was pretty rare. Um, But by the 90s, I'm seeing teenagers. Right. By the 2000s, I'm seeing fans having babies. So there are babies on the hips of people. There are, you know, people bringing their pets. So this has become, it's evolved and Mm. it's a family event. And like a lot of marginalized or on the margins of society activities and fandoms definitely are, they set up boundaries and they figure out, okay, they've been evolving with this. And as we have families being introduced to this activity, we see that there's certain floors where there's sex activity that happens. There's Mm -hmm. certain areas where drinking happens and children aren't in either of those spaces. There's plenty of communication, usually through signs, cryptic signs that adults can figure out. Mm-hmm. that they set up new boundaries within the boundaries of the fan space. And for cosplayers, the interesting thing is they're primarily females. Right yeah. now, about three quarters of the subculture is female. And in that, they bump up against the other fandoms that are primarily male. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of difficulties that have come out of that, but the media has capitalized on it. And so... Yeah. They present the, especially these beautiful young women dressed as fantasy and science fiction characters, and they are sometimes dressed more provocatively, or there's more skin revealed, or they have three breasts or something like this. And so they become almost hypersexualized in the media. And so the media went from presenting this as a cute little thing that kids are doing on the weekends, or maybe this is an oddity that your uncle goes and does on the weekend. Now we're capitalizing on all of the hot button issues that are in society today. And they're being focused on in this group that's on the margins of society. It's only been probably in the last couple of years have I really seen the more celebrity cosplayers taking on the media in very specific ways. Yaya Han, for example, has had many situations where she has asked for articles to be retracted or something rewritten so that it represents the situation more accurately. And in doing so, she set herself up as an example for other cosplayers to start to disagree with the media and have them re-represent what they've presented in the first place. Problem with that is, as we all know, retractions and so on happen on the last pages or they happen in the margins. They don't really get a lot of attention. 
cosplayers will repost things that they know have been corrected in the hopes that that will set their reputation right. To them, I think that is one of the most important things is that they be genuine to themselves as a fan, to the cosplay fandom, and to their characters. And so especially if they've chosen a character who has virtuous qualities, they do not want anything to get out that they were kissing someone or that they were acting a certain way they shouldn't have been acting as that character. And that is commonly a misrepresentation in the media. They misunderstand play. I think that's true. And I suppose, actually, in terms of what you're saying, though, I'm thinking about a couple of articles that you cite in your book as a debate, I suppose, between James Pethokoukis on the one hand and Adam Ozimek on the other. So both journalists and Pethokoukis argues that the prevalence or the increasing ubiquity of cosplay is damaging to the economy. And he essentially, I think, takes this line that it shows a young segment of the population with an excess of time on their hands, engaging in leisure because there's a sort of sense of lethargy, not wanting to be more constructive members of their societies. And he suggests that the rise of cosplay is somehow indicative of this, that if people are, young people particularly, spending their time, their money in cosplay, that they're not then fully functioning, if you like, members of the economy. Adam Ozimek, I think quite rightly, takes a more nuanced view and challenges that. But I think you're right, that brings together a lot of these strands that one, cosplay is still something that is largely misunderstood, as you said, it's marginalised. But also, I think this idea of the young and the way that this is a subculture that is, shut me down if I'm wrong, but I mean, is kind of more associated with young people. It absolutely is. I think that it's a growing, it's an aging subculture, and we'll see how that goes. But honestly, I've been researching subcultures for about 20 years now, and this subculture is very interesting in its makeup. One, that it's got so many females, but also it does have this aging population that I'm now seeing families doing cosplay, but it's very small. The percentage of the aging population, it's still undetermined where that will be. I'll be curious to see what the subculture looks like in 10 years. But being that it's primarily females, the fact that families are being included in the subculture now makes perfect sense to me. That is exactly what a woman would do. If she had a child, she wanted to continue to participate in the subculture, she would continue to do so with the child. And are we seeing that? I mean, those cosplayers that have children it's the fact that it is this continuity as you say it's the fact that they were cosplaying when they were single or newly married or in a couple and now they've had children they're now introducing their children to it right exactly children of course respond to it quite well because it's like halloween intensified but I love that you bring up these two contrary articles. I pulled them out of the book probably about four times. I almost didn't include them. They are something that's near and dear to my heart, partially Mm. because the article that argues that cosplay is bad for the U.S. economy is using an argument that's based on Japanese economy. 
Yeah. Right now, one of the greatest concerns in Japan is the zero population growth and that the young people are not wanting to take full-time jobs. So they work part-time and they might participate in fandoms like cosplay. So, of course, there's money going back into the cosplay industry, but there isn't money necessarily going back into the Japanese economy. And so that's really where the one argument is coming from. We've already seen this happen in another country. This could happen here. The difference is pulled out by the other article that, no, actually, our economy is much broader. We're actually benefiting from cosplay with all the conventions and things that we hold in the U.S. We see that local economies do much better with cosplay conventions happening in their town or fan conventions in general happening. And we're even seeing promoters starting to recognize that there's a lot of attention, media attention, and therefore a lot of money attached to cosplay. So now we have cosplay focused conventions where they are the primary fans at that convention, which has not been the case before about 10 years ago. I mean, that's true. I mean, I think one thing that struck me when I was reading your book, you state that in terms of figures, the global sales of cosplay costumes in US dollars is like 11.7 billion. And that at a given convention, 70% of cosplayers will spend in excess of $100. And that's an extraordinary, I suppose, on the face of it, if, if you're not used to this sort of idea of cosplay or fandom, that's a lot of money. I mean, a lot of people going to galleries or museum exhibitions and inevitably leaving through the gift shop will buy their catalogue, which might be, I don't know, $35, $40, and maybe a postcard or a pencil top with some kind of novelty. But to spend that sort of money, I think, bespeaks the dedication and commitment that people have to cosplay that, as you said, is not necessarily always represented in the media or fully brought out by articles as that's written by James Pethokoukis? I would say that the media really tries to, if they talk about how much money is spent, they try to present it as this is a fanatic, right? That's where we get the word fan from, but Mm -hmm. it presents it like this person's out of control. If you're involved in cosplay that's anime and manga related, you may even refer to yourself as an otaku, you know, which is like a Japanese word for an uber fan. But otaku actually has some pretty bad connotations in Japan because of the otaku murders. Japanese culture just doesn't have murders that happen very often. So when this young man who was an anime manga fan, committed murder. Then he was called the otaku murderer. And otaku kind of took this negative slant. So people in Japan are very careful not to call themselves otakus. People in the rest of the world are still calling themselves otaku. Mm. And this otaku idea, though, is really kind of interesting because the media capitalizes on it. Even if they don't use that word, they capitalize on it by presenting our fans as obsessive people spend every dime and every moment on this activity. And truly, in my interviews, people definitely presented that side of themselves. But the more I would talk to them, the more I'd realize it's a little bit of hyperbole because they are working part-time or full-time. Some have chose to stay at home and live with mom and dad so that they can afford to do this. Some have lots of roommates. But I don't think this is that different from a lot of experiences that young people have. 
trying to experiment with dress to create an identity for themselves. In this case, though, they really can dress up for the rest of their lives in their favorite characters and go a couple of weekends a year to their favorite conventions. And I've met most of these people and known them for a number of years. These are very productive people in society. I don't really know that we have the same situation that Japan is currently experiencing. And I would also say that American conventions there's a lot of babies being produced. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely don't have a zero population situation happening with our no. fandoms here. I think what's interesting, though, and again, this idea of the involvement of young people and this being you know, predominantly a youth subculture, even if, as you said, it's getting older. You talk about people adopting fluidic and conflicted identities. And I think in a lot of the research that I've done and thinking about fancy dress so much broadly. But if we go back to, and we, we mentioned this right at the start of this discussion about Carnival, a lot of those sort of Carnivalesque rights, you do have young people that play a central role. So for example, at the change of season, these sort of seasonal festivities, it's often young men or, or young boys that have a pivotal role in these rites. You have the Feast of Fools where Young boys can dress as bishops when there's that inversion of roles. And it's been suggested in a lot of research that the reason young people, particularly young males in these pre-modern societies, have such a pivotal role is because, of course, these young people will go on to become the future of their societies. And I'm just wondering to what extent there are, if you like, continuities or parallels in the sense that is the involvement of young people in cosplay or in fancy dress more generally. We're seeing a lot of street protests around the world where dressing up in various forms is playing a role. To what extent are these subcultures appealing to young people because it gives them a voice, it gives them a means of expressing themselves that otherwise would be denied to them because of their age? I think you're touching on half of it. The other part of this, though, I think is gender. So I remember when I was young and I watched an Errol Flynn movie and I wrapped a curtain sash around my waist and I grabbed a toilet plunger as my sword and yeah. I was jumping around the house on the furniture and I was swashbuckling anything that would hold still. <laughs> and my family was fine with that. But yeah. when my neighbor came over, she said, you can't be a pirate. You can't be, you know, she was telling me all these things I can't be because I'm a girl. I mean, I appreciated the fact that I was raised by very, very strong women. But I looked around and saw in the 70s, a lot of young women were not experiencing that. Mm. And unfortunately, we still have that situation today. Mm. So it's one of my favorite things to see in cosplay is crossplay. Yes. Where young girls, and not just young girls, but for our particular conversation here, young mm. girls dressing as male characters and then owning all of those characteristics and activities and power that those male characters might have. And sometimes mm. they're older male characters, sometimes it's younger male characters, but the women really embrace these male roles. In addition, when they're playing even female characters, there's a certain power to being a princess or queen 
that doesn't fall into those standard characteristics of she needs someone to save her. In fact, there's commonly these almost graphic signs that when someone's dressed up like a princess, that she might be wearing a sarcastic sign that says, I don't need Prince Charming to save me. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things happen a lot in cosplay. So they take these vulnerable characters and mm-hmm. they make them stronger. They make yeah. them more powerful to give themselves some agency. I see the two working together because these are two of the most vulnerable things to have together. And that is a young woman. Yeah. She just doesn't have any kind of power at all. And within these characters, she can find that power and agency. And she has other people that are willing to play along. And she leaves the convention a much more confident person. I mean, I suppose that this is maybe thinking about the future of cosplay. But I mean, how then do you see that role evolving? I mean, do you think it will always remain predominantly female? Do you see more men getting involved in cosplay? Yeah, it's a little heartbreaking to me, only because I remember being a young girl and how important those spaces to be powerful were. But I definitely see the trend changing. I have seen more and more males joining cosplay. The interesting thing is probably about a third to maybe a half of them are cross-playing. So they're taking female characters. And It's very interesting, something I only got to touch on briefly in the book because it was something that was starting to appear and I didn't have time to really flesh it out and didn't want to dive into it if I couldn't give it more attention. But I definitely touch on it towards the end of the book, which is males dressing as females right now, this seems to be the trend in the fandom, is they need to either do it as parody, right? Or they need to do it perfect. I mean, perfect. To a degree that women wouldn't necessarily be held. It's kind of remarkable to me. There's a lot of comics out there that are spoofing on cosplay bias. And it'll have a heavyset young woman and a heavyset young man. And the heavyset young woman will be dressed as Wonder Woman. And the heavyset young man will be saying, how dare she dress like Wonder Woman? She doesn't have her figure, right? Well, now it seems that that definitely still happens. But now we have the opposite happening where young men are dressing as women and they should have flawless skin and their hair should be perfect and the costume should fit perfect and they should have all the curves and nuances of a female body. And Mm -hmm. it's very interesting to me because I saw many men, I mean, passing as the character that you could not identify their gender You could not identify them as a person underneath all the costume because it was done so precisely. It was a little unnerving at times, and it would take until they told me who they were that Mm. I understood, oh, you're cross-playing. Yeah. I suppose that, I mean, what's quite interesting then is that, I mean, going back to this idea of kind of nomenclature where we started, this idea of vulnerability. I mean, here you've got a sort of sartorial form that enables you to whether you're male whether you're female you know to express yourself in a way that probably doesn't exist in the same way in any other facet of your life I guess absolutely and it doesn't seem to be indicative of anything else other than them just exploring this fan appreciation for a specific character Mm. I do hope the fandom as it evolves 
becomes open to those young men that are somewhere in between. They want to dress as Snow White, but they don't necessarily want to be flawless as Snow White. I think that there could be a space for young men gaining agency and exploring things that, as you mentioned, very difficult to do still in Western society for young men to just play with dolls or dress as a girl. These things are still met with some questionable behaviors by adults. I think that's true. And I think it's in some of the research I've done when I've been speaking to adolescent males, that idea that you were saying about perfection, that if men are, well, I'm not talking here about cosplaying, but just in terms of, if you like, conventional dress, but if they're going to be, let's say, a little bit more avant-garde and wear more pattern or wear more colour, again, there is this idea that came through in a lot of the interviews that I did that they can't just enjoy it. That's not sufficient. They have to be adept at it. They have to do it really, really well. So I think it is interesting that even when we are in a sartorial subculture where you've perhaps got a little bit more sense of acceptance, where you don't have the quite rigid social strictures, you still have some of those socialized ideas creeping in. Absolutely. That is definitely true. It's such a safe space. Fan conventions in general are a pretty safe place to be geeky and nerdy and enjoy what you enjoy without judgment. And if the judgment comes, it's usually a joke. But cosplayers in particular, there are very few spaces for them to Mm. really be able to wear and perform their characters to a receptive audience. Mm. No, I think that's true. And I suppose then sort of thinking about broadening this discussion out. Another sort of theme that you mentioned in your book is the idea of, if you like, sort of cross-pollination. So the connection between cosplay and fashion. Now, you cite Barbara Brownie and Danny Graydon, who in their work on superheroes do make more of a, or suggest there's a greater elision between dressing up cosplay and fashion and this idea of built-in obsolescence. Now, that's something you challenge. I love Brownie and Graydon. I do. (laughs) I love their books so much. I mean, I looked for a way to say it as kindly as possible. (laughs) They're wrong about this one particular thing. When you go into fan conventions, you very quickly will see Batmans of every era. Batman's one of my favorite characters, so I see him everywhere. And you see Batman of every era. And so what they suggest in their book is that you wouldn't dress as Batman from the 70s TV series like Adam West's Batman. You wouldn't dress like him because that's out of trend, that's not in favor, that's not in fashion. And the fashion inside of a fandom is really dictated by that culture or that subculture. And I think that's what they missed, is that inside fandoms, you have other reasons that move you towards things of the past. And if they looked at fashion cycles carefully, they'd realize we borrow from past fashions over and over again. So there are moments of time where certain things become more popular in fandoms even. So if we saw, like, for example, if Adam West passed away, then maybe that would spur the next season of conventions. We'd see a lot of vintage Adam Mm -hmm. West style Batman. In fact, I included an image in my book of an older couple, an elderly couple dressed as Batman and Wonder Woman, just to give a little play on that. 
so that we could understand that people that are coming to the cosplay conventions or cosplay activities, they're coming from different ages. And actually, I love the campy Adam West Batman. And so when I see him at conventions, I go up immediately and I just congratulate them on wearing it. And I think there's probably other people, my generation, who feel the same way. So I think there's enough applause for that older Batman that he's going to keep wearing it. So there's things that Brownie and Graydon just sort of nuances I think they missed from cosplay. It's not the primary emphasis of their book. No, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I've spoken to people in some of the research that I was doing. I mean, one guy in particular who his favorite character is Spider-Man and he's got, if memory serves, sort of 10 different versions of Spider-Man costumes. And I think they're all dear to him, worn at different times. And I think... Yes, there is a sense that, as you say, with the film franchise being updated, that might make him more inclined to wear or veer towards one of those costumes. But the memories that are attached to them, etc., means that they're all in circulation, if you like, for him. He doesn't regard any one of them as being redundant, as being passe or obsolescent, to use a term by Brownie and Graydon. I suppose that does raise the point, though, and your use of the word there of camp, in terms of thinking about how cosplay might influence or what Elysian's connections there might be between cosplay and fashion more broadly. And in thinking about camp, I'm obviously thinking about the Met Gala. And I mean, it's interesting as, you know, someone who's written about fancy dress, you know, to what extent what we saw on the pink carpet a couple of weeks ago could be construed as fancy dress. But also I think in light of this discussion that we're having now, to what extent it could be considered cosplay. I mean, in a lot of instances, you've got celebrities wearing costumes and there's a superficial nod. There isn't the embodiment that I think is important in a lot of what we've been saying. But then when you are confronted with, let's say, Ezra Miller, where there is sort of more of a performative role, I don't know. I mean, in looking at the Met Gala sort of pink carpet parade. Do you see any illusions there with cosplay or do you think they're worlds apart? Honestly, I just looked up Ezra Miller's costume and I see what you're saying. I honestly believe that there are some cosplayers that attended the Met or people that were cosplaying, let's say, for the night they were at the Met Gala. That is absolutely possible. It would only have to be someone who picked a fictional character as their inspiration, no matter which direction they took that in, and then that they had a certain fan attachment to that character. But it's a little difficult to tell. I definitely hear from cosplayers that I've interviewed and cosplayers that are even friends of mine that they are so desperate sometimes to wear their costumes or be their character that they will wear it for Halloween. The other thing I thought that you touched on before that was really interesting, and I don't think that I did a good job of capturing this in the book, is that when you're a cosplayer and you've dedicated hundreds of hours to a costume Mm. and learning role-playing attached to that costume, that costume becomes such a significant element of your material culture. It is so important to you. It's that t-shirt. I have a Sex Pistols t-shirt that a boy from the UK gave to me when I was like 14. It will never fit me again. It's so worn out. I wore it so many times, but I cannot throw that t-shirt away. It Mm -hmm. just has too many memories attached. 
Then I think about a cosplay costume and all the performances they did, good or bad in them. Mm-hmm. I can see why cosplayers have an entire closet dedicated to their cosplay costumes that they yeah. can't give up. And yeah. in that, they might pull them out and wear them again. I know that some of the celebrities do this. They'll pull out an old costume and they'll wear it to a convention because yeah. everybody's like, oh, I remember she wore yeah. that in yeah. 2004. Yeah. And yeah, so that nostalgia Mm. It's pretty important to the subculture because it is part of why they dress in their favorite characters and go to conventions. Uh, They turn to conventions for the feelings that they have associated, the friendships they've made there. And those relationships feed that nostalgia. Mm. It's really remarkable to me. There's this very wonderful feeding upon itself in the fandom to the point where they're almost building something new. Like I said, I'm very curious to see where this cosplay fandom is in 10 years, 20 years. That's a nice way to bring the strands of this story together. I mean, what do you see, I suppose, as the major challenges for the cosplay community or indeed opportunities within the next few years? Well, I think if they're smart and their female members continue to guide them the way that they have been, I think Mm. the subculture is going to survive and do well. It's actually going to probably thrive. Hopefully, some of the issues they're dealing with, they can find resolution to, but their issues reflect society as a whole. It's just this magnified microcosm. So, In cosplay right now, I think the biggest issues that they're dealing with are racism, um, ageism, Mm. sizeism, and sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And so addressing sexual harassment, I'm very impressed with the young women. They created a campaign called Cosplays Not Consent. They realized they did some research, which was impressive, instead of just doing a knee-jerk reaction to sexual harassment that a lot of the young women and some young men are experiencing while in cosplay costumes. Mm -hmm. They actually went out and did some research and they realized that some fans and fans of fans and Mm -hmm. people that just come to conventions to see the parade or just come as a spectator, they're not exactly a fan or maybe they're a little embarrassed to admit they're a fan. And this Mm -hmm. is a way to come to a convention as an outsider, but still experience some of the inside things. In other subcultures, I might call them wannabes. In cosplay, I can see where there's really an audience that may not really want to don the costume. But Mm. for those people, they have an opportunity to interact with cosplayers. And unfortunately, they often interact inappropriately. When posing for pictures, they will touch the cosplayer. They'll take pictures of cosplayers without permission. There's a lot of physical assaults that are happening. Mm. And in particular, photographers cosplayers really want their photographs taken and disseminated and they want them taken by people that can take better pictures than their best friend or a better picture than you can accomplish with a selfie. And so for this, photographers have an in with cosplayers that nobody else does and they will take them into private spaces. And unfortunately, not always, from what I understand, most photographers are very, very professional, yeah. but occasionally it does result in sexual harassment or sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And what they've done in this cosplay is not consent campaign is they're trying to educate people that come to cosplay conventions or fandom conventions and even other fans at the convention 
trying mm. to communicate to them, just because I'm dressed like this doesn't mean you get to touch me. Exactly. You still need to have my consent. Yeah. And I feel like that is a reflection of society that we're struggling with. What is consent? How do yes. I ask for it? Is mm. it embarrassing if I don't just know I have it? There's a lot of that kind of discussion happening in society. It's not surprising that it's also happening in this subculture. I've been yeah. attracted to subcultures that have large female populations or minority female populations because of the way females are interacting in those subcultures. And this just kind of evolved through my career. It wasn't intentional at all, but I'm really not surprised that I wound up where I did. But no matter what, when I was looking at roller derby girls, yeah. I saw the same kinds of things where, yes, they're very sexualized objects moving very fast around a track in a very powerful way. And this is going to attract people to touch them. When their athletes don't touch them, they're being athletes. And when they're off the track, you need to respect them for being females and not objects. Yes, and exactly. so this is a very challenging thing to do because our sports figures are not usually females. Mm -hmm. And in that, it's a new thing we have to learn. Yeah. And so I was a roller derby girl. I know I got patted on the behind way more than I ever should have. We actually had a rule in our league where you could only pat someone on the rear if they had just done something really good. And then you had to say, good job. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of our way of dealing with the sexual harassment with humor. Cosplayers mm -hmm. definitely do that. But more and more, we're seeing celebrity cosplayers have bodyguards. Yeah. We're seeing the cosplay is not consent signs everywhere. We see women with graphic signs. There's the whiteboards that get circulated so that they can write on the whiteboards what people are saying or doing to them in the hope that shame yes. may change things. But as far as the other discriminations that are happening, there are discriminations that are happening all over the world. And cosplay is, like I said, this microcosm that's trying yeah. to deal with them. So right now, one of the most interesting conversations I'm following online is discussions around whiteface and blackface. Yes. Yeah. This idea that you can portray a black character, just don't do so in blackface seems to be mm. the general consensus. But recently, people have raised questions around what is whiteface and is mm. whiteface allowed? Yeah. And then weightism and sizeism, weightism, ageism, these have been in cosplay for a long time. I think only recently we've had some body positive examples of cosplayers, primarily females, who are putting it forward that, no, I don't have Wonder Woman's body, but I'm still going to dress as my favorite character, Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And honestly, in the last like two or three years, I have seen better reception for plus size women. Mm -hmm dressing in characters that wouldn't necessarily be plus size and being received very positively. So mm -hmm. I do feel like there's a change coming and it isn't uncommon for these kinds of changes to take seed in subcultures and make their way to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. I hope that that happens, but the idea of race is still very complicated. Part of it is we just don't have a lot of characters of color. We no. don't have a lot of diverse characters. And if we do, their comic books or their series gets canceled pretty quickly. 
I'm always thrilled when I do presentations on cosplay and someone introduces me to a new comic or series that I can watch that's about a more diverse character. Mm. But it still happens too rare. As you're talking then and you're making this really important point about how the sartorial subculture of cosplay reflects and is influenced by wider social concerns. And I think, as you're saying that, you know, absolutely. And why should it not be? But I think that is often something that's forgotten. And as you were talking, I was thinking of Barbara Babcock's work on symbolic inversion and her point that the symbolically peripheral is often actually symbolically central and that actually forms of sort of cultural negation, what is put at the periphery of a society actually can be much more revealing of a society's values than what is the white noise at the centre. Right. I would agree with that completely. And that leads us really to very recently here in London, Comic-Con over the weekend, and obviously lots of conventions like that over the world. Ben, you sent me... (laughs) Well, a horrible article from The Sun, which really emphasises that point about the focus being on female Mm. participants and what with it being The Sun, which for our American listeners is a tabloid newspaper that you need spend no time thinking about. It's the nastier end of the spectrum. And one of its favourite things is women's scantily clad bodies. Mm. So unsurprisingly, for their photo... montage their montage yeah yeah, it was just basically the more almost nipple you Mm. could see Mm. the bigger the photograph and i think you're right i mean for me what was so interesting and that's why i sent it to you rather than being an avid sun reader (laughs) if indeed you read the sun myself but it just seemed to be in a really horrid way the perfect distillation of a lot of the issues that i think Teresa was raising namely the issues of manipulation from the press and the way that the press misunderstands cosplay and therefore distorts it to readers who are not part of that world. But also at the same time, how cosplayers need the press in some ways to legitimise what they're doing. Mm. But also, as you rightly say, that problematic issue that you've got here, a fandom that does have a lot of females represented, which is quite unusual. And so the challenges that that poses in terms of how that is relayed and again understood by people who don't get dressing up or don't get cosplay more specifically. I think it's really easy for lazy journalism Mm. when the visuals are so powerful to just write a subhead and it be reasonably disparaging or frankly gratuitous Mm. and you're kind of done. You know, it's much harder to engage in the nuance of what's going on in those photographs, but also the power of the images themselves almost invites that because they don't really need the captioning. But that does leave them, unfortunately, open to interpretation in a way that isn't always flattering. Yeah. One of the things that I do love from all pictures to do with cosplay, one of the things that I think is most charming about Mm. it at the other end of the spectrum is the kind of classic costumes, but with a twist. Mm. Because I'm a big fan of the mashup version. (laughs) And there are a good few examples of that, which we'll show you. Also, I like that when everyone's as a group, it just looks so much more fun than the straight-faced version of things. (laughs) We would love to do a special episode at Comic-Con or another major convention. And we are very keen to interview cosplayers themselves. So we've been so inspired by Mm. Teresa's stuff. And I think she's such a compelling 
Yeah, voices. No, really, yeah. Just a real treat. So if you're listening and keen, then please do get in touch with us. Links to the things we've discussed are, as always, in our show notes. You can see the pictures that accompany this conversation on our Instagram feed at Dress Fancy Podcast. Thank you to Teresa for being such an amazing guest. Her book, Costuming, Cosplay, Dressing the Imagination, is available now. And obviously you should all buy it. Go and rush to the shops. Thank you to Mark, our editor. Thank you all for listening. Join us next time for more costume drama.